Stand with me as we read together from Isaiah chapter 53, just these first three verses. Hear now God's word as he speaks to you. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let's pray together. Our God, what a strange reality for us to consider that the God of all creation would come and we would esteem him not, that he would be ordinary. Would you help us to understand this truth? Would you encourage us with this truth? Would you even rebuke some of our false notions of the way that we live that we might live in a way that's pleasing to you? Would you make the the gospel even sweeter to us as we consider these things? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, we thirst for, for greatness. We pursue greatness and importance as though that is what our life meaning is all about. Uh, the, uh, the motivational speaker Zig Ziglar said this. He said, you were designed for accomplishment, engineered for success, and endowed with the seeds of greatness. It's the message that we're told uh, even from childhood. Kids, I'm sure you've considered at some point what you want to be when you grow up because we've all considered that one point in time. Actually, the elders talked about what we thought about when we were kids, what we wanted to be when we grew up. Uh, and perhaps you'd consider someone important, someone famous, someone wealthy, someone intelligent and wise. No, nobody ever dreams of being ordinary, living an ordinary life. Uh, and our culture praises celebrity. Um, there was a guy, a historian named Daniel Borston, who said that a celebrity is someone that is known for his well-knownness. Somebody who's simply known for being well-known. And uh, with the rise of social media and the, the, the pursuit of getting followers, there's actually become an entire market of people, you've probably heard of this, of social media influencers. And it's become such a big thing that now there's different tiers of influencers. These are people that are simply uh, leveraged because of their connections, because people follow their social media profiles, their, their feeds, their, their Twitter things. And so the, the, the mega influencer is one who has uh, a million followers. And, and then you have macro and you have micro and you have... You know, those poor little nano influencers who simply have a thousand people that follow them. But we pursue this, this notion of, I have to have followers. And, and yet, in the midst of all that, when you consider these social media influencers, they're not providing any other value other than the fact that they have connections. In fact, the same guy, Daniel Borstein, says, said this, is that a sign of a celebrity 
is that his name is often worth more than his services. And that's, but we feel this drive within us, this drive to add value, to be important, to have people like us. And there's a reality that, you know, we are created in the image of God. There is absolute implicit beauty in every one of us because we are created in God's image. And Scripture makes clear that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. So there is beauty in that. But the, the truth of the matter is that importance, celebrity, it eludes us for the most part. And for almost all of us, we live, we're just ordinary people living ordinary lives. And, but we're constantly asking this question, what must I do to be valuable? What must I do to be valuable? But the, the good news of the gospel, and what, what I want you to hear from this passage today, is that the Lord Jesus Christ and the sovereign God of the universe loves the ordinary. And we know this because he sent his son to be an ordinary person just like you and me. And if we were to summarize what I want you to understand today is that the glorious God of the universe sent his glorious son of, this glorious son of God to be ordinary just like you and me so that we could be made glorious in him. So this passage uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah 53 is one of four so-called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These are songs written by the prophet Isaiah um, hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ came, and they are, have these prophecies about the suffering servant who was to come. Uh, this, uh, in, in chapter 53, is part of the fourth servant song, um, and it's probably one of the most well-known. And as we look at it today, kind of three things that I think we can see in this that I want us to focus on is that this suffering servant, as he came, he would be not welcomed, he would be not desired, and he would be not esteemed. Not welcomed, not desired, and not esteemed. So in verse 2, it says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Now this is poetic language, Hebrew poetry, as these uh, servant songs are written. And he's using poetic language, speaking of this suffering servant. It says, he grew up before him like a young plant. Now, it's hard for us to understand it, but this is contrasted to mighty oaks, oaks with roots, oaks with uh, strength. Here is a young plant that is a sprout, even a sprout of a felled tree, um, and these oaks would be those who had the strength of tradition and ancestral lineage that would be welcomed and appreciated and loved. But he is a young plant. And he's coming out of, a, he's like a, coming out like a root out of dry ground, not root in uh, fertile ground. It is an environment that is hostile where he. This, this plant has to uh, survive despite his circumstances. 
He's, he has to be able to stand firm even though he's not being nourished by his environment. It's a, it's a prophecy that he will live a hard life, a life that is not welcoming to him, but he must stand firm in the midst of that, in the midst of those who don't appreciate him. Uh, and the Apostle John in his gospel said that the Lord Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, which is remarkable because this is the very Son of God, the one true and living God, the Almighty God, come to be with us. His name was Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Who would not, and, and, and on top of that, he is the son of David that's been prophesied, the king to deliver them. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to receive that? Who wouldn't want to receive that? And he came, if you, if you remember, he came without any pomp, any fanfare. Well, there was fanfare from heaven. The heavenly host burst out into worshipful song at his birth. But he did, they did that even while the kings of the earth considered how they might take his life, how they might eliminate him. He, was, he appeared to poor outcasts, shepherds, not to the elite, not to those who should have received him. And he came humbly in humble circumstances to a poor family, a poor young couple, and born not in a palace, but in an animal food trough. And one of the, one of the names that he goes by most often is Jesus of Nazareth. And in case you don't I'm not familiar with Nazareth, Nazareth is nowheresville. It's the middle of nothing. It's poor. It's isolated. There's nothing there. And if you remember when Jesus called Nathaniel, his disciple, and, and, and Philip said to Nathaniel, hey, come see Jesus of Nazareth, Philip's response, or Nathaniel's response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is nothing. And yet this is where Jesus chose to be identified as a nowhere place from a nowhere family in the middle of nothing. And, and on top of all that, he, he doesn't take a job that is a high-profile job. He essentially becomes a handyman, somebody who just works with his hands and serves. Friends, what kind of God sends their only son into his creation to that? What kind of God does not say, I am going to exalt my son. You will bow down and worship him. You will receive him with fear and trembling because he is glorious. Our God. Our God who sent his son to be just like you and me. Just like you and me. So that he would know us. Hebrews says, so he would understand us, so he would experience our life. He would understand the mundane moments, uh, the, the frustrations of our life. So he'd be tempted like you and me, tempted to despair 
in the midst of the mundane, tempted to be discouraged at the ugliness that life can be, or to idolize the things we don't have, or even idolize the things that we do have. He came to be just like you and me in that. So he was not welcomed, not received, but he was also not desired. See what it says in verse 2. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So if we were going to make a movie of the Gospels, and if we set aside for just a moment whether or not the second commandment allowed us to make visual images of the Lord Jesus Christ, and let's say we, we were going to do that, who would we cast for, for Jesus? And I don't know the answer to that, but I, I can say that if we wanted to be historically accurate, we would not pick a single person from Hollywood. Certainly not somebody that was in the top most handsome actors. Because what does the text say? It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That term form is used throughout scripture. It really just means appearance. Uh, you see in scripture uh, good form, which means handsome or beautiful, and then you see bad form, which we would say is ugly. Um, but he, it just says, simply says no form. He had no form that we should look at him. He's, just, he's not neither beautiful nor ugly. He's just there, just plain, unassuming. Uh, the term for majesty could also be splendor. Uh, he had no, there's nothing majestic or splendor. He was, he, he was just plain and no beauty that we should desire him. Hebrew poetry uh, uses this device called parallelism where you uh, have one or more different lines of poetry and they're put side by side to either emphasize something either by repeating it or by contrasting it. And you see that here. Um, he had no, no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That he, there was nothing beautiful about him, nothing, no, no form, no externals that we, we would want to have anything to do with him based upon his outward beauty, which is remarkable because the text of Scripture says that he is immensely, infinitely beautiful. Psalm 45 uh, says, Glorious is the king in his chamber. You are the most handsome of men. The, the queen and her beauty would be brought to this beautiful king. And if we read the book of Revelation, see those images of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're stunningly beautiful and terrifying. In fact, so, so holy, so glorious, so beautiful, so awesome is the almighty God that no man can look at him and live. And so consider the irony of that God coming in a form that is unassuming and un, not beautiful. Uh, he sent his son without that beauty that we would attract, be attracted to it. And we are driven by this notion of physical outward beauty. It's part of how we assess our value. We compare ourselves with other people. Uh, guys do it. Uh, most guys do it with the way we watch our weight or we you know, keep ourselves fit or the clothes that we dress. And ladies, we can't deny the fact that 
our culture preaches a relentless pursuit of outward, constant outward beauty. Um, And we cope with it in lots of different ways. The creator of all beauty, the one who has made each one of us the way he has, the one who defines what beauty is, sent his son to be a picture of what beauty really is. Not outward beauty, not something that we would be attracted to, but unassuming. He was probably average build, average height, probably untoned muscles, average eyes, average face, maybe a misplaced mole, maybe some crooked teeth, maybe his facial features weren't perfectly symmetrical. He was normal. He was ordinary. He came to be like us so that he could experience the temptations that we face to idolize the way that we look, the pursuit of outward beauty as an affirmation of who we are on the inside. He was tempted to be narcissistic and consumed with the way that he looked as he pursued that. And he he fought against the temptation to despair over being not as good looking as that other person, passed over an importance and attention because he wasn't as good looking as that guy. And he felt the pain of being ignored because that wasn't him. But he came to give us real beauty, beloved. We did not desire him, but he desired us. He desired us. Knowing who we are, knowing everything about us, he desired us and entered into that to be like us, to redeem us. He he saw our form marred by sin and he came to clothe us with his beauty. And that's, if we read through the passages, the pages of scripture, that's what we see. He is in the process of beautifying us individually and as a church for himself. What's that great and glorious picture in Revelation? Like a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. And he's beautifying us even now more thoroughly and more perfectly than even Esther's year-long beautifying treatments. He's doing it from the inside out. So he was not welcomed, he was not desired, but he was also not esteemed. It says, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It wasn't enough that he was not welcomed. It wasn't enough that he was not wanting to look at, but he was despised. Despised by us, by those to whom he came to save. And that ought to warm your hearts, brothers and sisters, is that we despised and rejected him well before he came. And in the midst of our hatred and our opposition, he came to love us, not despise us, but to love us so that we could be accepted. And so he 
He was made like us to be despised and rejected because so often we are despised and rejected in the midst of our lives. We feel the pain of not being everything to every person that's in our lives. And he felt that. He felt that pain. He knows the pain that you feel when you are passed over for a job, when you are passed over by a friend in favor of somebody else. He knows that pain. He knows how you hurt. And he prays for you because he knows that pain. His, one of his closest friends betrayed him to death. He knows betrayal. So he's made like us and experienced that so that he could be our high priest, but he was also despised and rejected so that we could be loved and accepted. So when we think about those three things, how Jesus came, not welcome, not desired, not, um, not esteemed, does that make the gospel harder to believe? Because look at what Paul, what, Paul, what Isaiah says at the beginning. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed? Here's why this message is difficult. This is not, what kind of God sends his son in the midst of this? If we were going to write this story, if we were going to write a story about the God of all time sending his glorious son into the world, would we ever write a story like this? Does the, does the gospel, the ordinary gospel, the ordinary story of, a, of a, the Son of God coming as an ordinary man, does that, does that make it harder for you to believe? Does it, does it make it seem less worth believing? Do you sp- despise the story? Do you want a different kind of God? Is there something frustrating about that, that God's ways are not your ways. You want, you want a God that answers your prayers like that. You want a God that fixes things and doesn't let you dwell in the midst of the pain that you feel each day, that wants you to have reconciliation that it's not just momentary, it lasts. You want success. You want those things that you don't have. Did you want a, a king that is coming, that is mighty and glorious, that is resplendent? Can you imagine how the gospel would have been so much different if Jesus had come as a different type of king? If he had come unveiled, as it were, if he showed himself for who he was? I mean, we, as Christians, American Christians at least, We're so taken by celebrity that we get so excited when there's a famous person that comes to know the Lord. Not because we, like heaven, rejoice when a sinner repents, but because now we have a champion. See, look, now we have validation. There is somebody important that believes what we believe. Yet, friends, our champion is the one who came and humbled himself and became like us. Our champion is the one who came to know us, to be like us, so that he could live our life perfectly and pay the price that we deserve. Jesus Christ came to rescue us from celebrity worship so that we could worship our God in spirit and in truth. 
And it, I mean, we, we can't forget what we see elsewhere in Scripture. Colossians says that the Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his being. And the image that he shows us is that of a God who humbles himself to enter into his creation, to be like them, to redeem them. He didn't come in a flashy way to the untouchable elite. He came to the poor and the weak. And our reaction so often is to, what does it say? We hid our faces from him. We wouldn't look at him. We wouldn't desire him. Do you glorify, in, do you glory in the story or do you despise it? There's a, there's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 5, one of my favorite passages, favorite story. Uh, the, uh, the man Naaman, who is the commander of the Syrian army, he comes down with leprosy and there's this little girl that was an Israelite girl that got captured into the Syrian army and she hears of his leprosy and she says you know, to his wife, Tell him he should go see Elisha, the man of God in Israel. And so Naaman says, okay, I'll go see Elisha. So he goes to see Elisha. Elisha won't even talk to him, but Elisha says, go and bathe in the um, Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. Naaman gets angry. He gets angry and he says, oh, I thought that man of God was going to come out and wave his hands around me and, and heal me and do something spectacular. And his servants say, but if he had done all those things, you would, have, you would have done it. You would have partaken in it. Why don't you just go bathe in the Jordan River? And so he does, and he's healed. And friends, that's us. We want something magnificent and glorious. We don't want the ordinary. We want, we want a God who comes with flash and panache and power. And yet we have the humblest of God, the brought us to glory. It's a simple, ordinary message, but we want more. And often we're not impressed with him. But it's important for us to realize that he did this for his glory. Um, beloved, we know that Scripture says over and over again that God loves the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the oppressed, the outcast, the weak. And have you considered that that's the way that the Lord looks at you? And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing because that is where his heart is. Remember what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. He says, um, For consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. We pursue these things, these, this approval in the eyes of the world, wealth and beauty and athleticism and intelligence and musical ability. But to what end? Is the God who created all things and who owns all things impressed with the pittance of our wealth? Is the God who is resplendent in beauty, holy beyond measure, impressed with 
our clothes or the way that our bodies looked? Or is God, who is the fountain of all truth and wisdom, impressed one bit with your knowledge or your wisdom? He's not. He's not. These things, these pursuits are not needful for us. These aren't the things that we ought to focus on. God adores you. And I know this because he sent his son to be just like you. You do not have to prove anything to the Almighty God because he has already proved his love to you. He valued you in the midst of your, and despite your failings and your faults and your foolishness, he has loved you from all eternity. You don't need to warrant his love by being extraordinary. He has already lavished his love beyond measure towards you. And our hope is in that, the fact that God doesn't glorify himself in spite of our ordinary nature, our weakness, but through it. This is how uh, Paul ends this. He says, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose us so that he could show his power and his glory and his extraordinary beauty through us. And that's good news. A famous Mark Twain story, The Prince and the Pauper, tells a story of two young boys. One is the Prince of Wales. The other is the youngest son of a poor family. And they happen to meet each other. And they're struck by the fact that they look very similar to each other. And as they're telling of each other's lives, they're uh, excited to learn more. And they hatch this plan to switch places where the poor boy goes to become the prince and the prince becomes the poor boy. And beloved, that is a picture that is not too far off for what your God has done for you. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, entered into human existence to put on the pauper's clothes of our ordinary life so that we could be exalted and be clothed with his glorious splendor in his kingdom forever and ever. That's good news, friends. Let's pray. Father, help us to marvel at your glorious grace and your glorious love and your glorious plan. Help us to submit ourselves to you to it. I pray that you would continue to humble us before your loving hand. I pray that we would live our lives to glorify you. Help us to put to death our pursuit of the idols that we have in our hearts and to pursue you with all of our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, our hymn of